because we know in, in the five to 10 year time frame, there's going to be a massive consolidation of the market, right? That, that's inevitable. The question is, prior to that, how do some of those folks get in, build brands that are worth value that those MSOs will eventually acquire? This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Jesse Campo Amor. Jesse, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Lovely day. Thank you so much for bringing me on. I'm a big fan of what you guys do, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk to Jesse. Excited to learn about the New York market. I know it's probably center stage right now. Um, how are you, Brian? I'm excited as well. You're right. New York is always kind of right in the middle of it. And Jesse, we have a little East Coast, West Coast battle. I know Kellen kind of led into it, but for the record, your location, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from Manhattan, the epicenter of the cultural and financial epicenter of the world. Beautiful, beautiful. So I guess before we dive in, Jesse, and before we talk New York cannabis, can we get a little background about yourself? Sure. So um, I'm just coming off of a two-year stint working for our governor, Andrew Cuomo, our former governor. I took the job six months prior to the pandemic, primarily to work on the cannabis file. I was very excited. Uh, you know, prior to working for the governor, I worked for a, a consulting firm called Capolino and Company, one of the largest municipal lobbying firms in the in the state, in the country, actually. Um, and, and had built a, a business um, in Capolino representing cannabis companies, right? A lot of these white shoe lobbying firms were kind of staying away from cannabis. It was still a little, little hot, um, too hot to touch. And, and uh, you know, we had a leader who really believed in the opportunity and we built about a $4 million book of business. And so when, when I was approached by the leadership of the Cuomo administration to come on board, I said, look, you guys have some brilliant minds over there. What I'm seeing you lack is somebody that can help you actually, from, a, from an operative standpoint, get us over the finish line. And so when I came in, you know, Axel, Bernabe, and myself were really a one-two punch, right? Like, I like to say if Axel was the brains, I was the brawn. And I say that with pride because, you know, it, there were so many stakeholders, you can imagine, so many different voices and opinions that we needed to bring along on the ride, right? And, and you know, we did that. We did that. I think, with perfection. Now, look, I, we can't take all the credit. This was almost a perfect storm of events, right? Like, if there wasn't this looming crisis and scandal that was going on behind the scenes with my principal, um, I don't think we would have had the, the 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 real latitude to do and to take it as far as we did, right? I think, you know, when when the, the post-ops were written, the post-mortems about what we did, talk about one of the most progressive, forward-thinking, inclusive pieces of legislation on cannabis in the country. Typically, what would have happened if the executive and, and some of the other leadership had more bandwidth was they would have allowed us to take it to the five-yard line, and then they would have said, all right, we're coming in and we're going to finish this thing out. They didn't have the bandwidth to do that because they were dealing with this other crisis, and it really gave us you know, the space to kind of get, get that, that bill in that we got, the MRTA. And so, you know, my background is, I'm sorry, I know I'm jumping around, but my background, I come out of the healthcare space. I, I my first 10 years of my career were with 1199 SCIU, which is the Healthcare Workers Union. I was a political organizer there. Jumped around to work for the city comptroller, then to the private sector. And then most recently, I was with the governor's office. You know, I left the governor about a week after the, the attorney general dropped her report on some of his conduct. Um, and now I've started my own firm, Campo Moore & Sons, LLC. I really like to call myself a bit of a Sherpa, right? A Sherpa for, for a lot of these folks navigating what really is a regulatory forest. You know, when I talked to cannabis companies when I was on the government side, I said, you guys really are just compliance companies. 
in a highly regulated market, those that understand how to navigate through the compliance issues are the ones that find the largest margins. And, and as of now in, in the private side of this, it's, it's so relevant because New York is a highly regulated cannabis market. And so they need somebody that can guide them through that process. And like, you know, you know what a Sherpa is, right? The Sherpa is the guys that you hire. You want to hire, you know, climb Mount Everest. You hire a Sherpa. They throw you on their back and they take you up the mountain. You know, and I said, you know, a coach is a little bit more passive. They're on the sidelines. I like to think of myself as very, very hands-on in the mix, um, helping that folks navigate through this process. Because, guys, I'm sure you know, there are a lot of grifters, a lot of folks pretending to be experts in this space that are full of it. And you can get fleeced in New York if you don't know what you're doing. You can end up spending a million extra dollars you don't have to spend if you don't have the right people on your side. Uh, and so, you know, now I'm working with some folks that come out of the legacy space, some more traditional organizations. I got an MSO. But all of that is really focused on what I feel is part of my legacy, which is making sure that the communities that were criminalized by the war on drugs now benefit from the commercialization of that same industry, right? One day this will create massive wealth. We're not there yet, right? And I think there's a lot of myth around people making money now and the fact is a lot of people are losing money. But when that shift happens, I want to make sure those that were, that were you know, literally prosecuted and persecuted their whole lives get to commercially benefit from it. I think that's really well said, and there's so much to kind of dive into and why I'd love to kind of skip to the end and all the fun parts. I think it's really important to start from the real beginning. So as of today, 118, 2023, what is the current status of New York cannabis market? So uh, March 31st of last year, we signed the MRTA into, into law. Um, quickly after that, we get the Cannabis Control Board set up, which is the five-person commission that oversees the, the Office of Cannabis Management. Uh, similar to our state liquor authority with their commissioners. Quickly, uh, look, there was a very intentional political calculus here, which is on the initial rollout, how do we, from a social equity lens, make sure we're, we're empowering some of those folks that have really fallen between the cracks, right? So what happened first was we licensed conditional cultivators and conditional processors. Those were, for, those were hemp farmers, small hemp farmers, that have been growing hemp at least for the last two years. And then we quickly turned around and announced the uh, conditional adult use retail dispensaries, or, or colloquially we call them card applicants. Those are folks on the retail side that were justice involved, meaning they were convicted uh, for a cannabis-related offense in the state of New York and had demonstrated that they were able to run a profitable business for two years. And so we've, we've now issued about 36, 38 of those licenses. Uh, the 25th of this month, OCM will, will reconvene and, and will announce another 20 to 30. And, you know, they, they've, they've said 150 of these licenses are up for grabs. We'll see that there, there is some hubbub now. You're hearing it first now on your podcast, but there might be a scenario where we end up issuing a lot more than 150 for these card applicants because some of the scoring processes, as, as we're seeing, you know, they, they were stuck in this process of how do we deal with some of the social justice issues, social equity, but still uh, empower and give licenses to some of the best operators. And I think what we're finding now is some of the guys that are winning the licenses first are winning because they came from zip codes of, of really uh, abject poverty um, with very low ho household income uh, averages versus people that have demonstrated they've had a large workforce or, or large revenue um, as part of their business. And so you know, we'll see how that plays out. I think it's a very interesting, um, you know, dilemma, but uh, very exciting. I think also larger context, guys, this is like, if you look around the country, 
there has been no state that I know of that within the first 18 to 20 months of, of ratifying the law, we already have processors, cultivators, and retail up and running. And I think that's kudos to OCM. That being said, a lot more work to get done. There's a lot of product that's just sitting in shelves right now, and this is perishable goods. And so I think OCM is really eager to, to get things going uh, even faster. But I got to give it to them. They're, they're, they're moving pretty quickly. I know there's a... Look, New York State, New York is expecting in a New York minute, right? That's just part of our attitude. Um, but for real, like in, in the larger context, these guys are moving pretty fast. Yeah, so New York has always been kind of the... Or trying to be the staple or the, the star child of social equity. Could you kind of describe some of the design features that went into how that was launched and why it took uh, so long for them to make sure they got all the pieces in the right places before bringing the market online? Absolutely. Look, I think that I appreciate that. When, when I was working in, in the state and we were you know, thinking about the social equity component, I think what we observed is that every other state thought about social, social equity was almost an afterthought. It was, let's stand up the cannabis market and then we'll figure this social equity thing out. And yeah. I think what was, what was unique and different about New York from our messaging internal, and, and it really reverberated because everybody that came into our offices led with the social equity component, was that we were going to, that that integral to the whole program was we, we would weave in social equity. And so what that looked like from a, from a legislative standpoint and structurally was 50% of all licenses have to go to, to um, social equity uh, candidates. Um, we're going to establish a fund right, we call the social equity fund, that's a debt fund to give access to capital for applicants uh, that qualify as social equity uh, candidates, right? And that's really important because as you guys know, the biggest barrier to entry for a lot of folks that come from less fortunate communities is money, right? This is a capital intensive job. It's a capital intensive business. And for folks that don't come from communities where they can raise a half a million, 2.5 million from friends and family, access to debt, really changes the game. And so this, this debt fund that we started that's being run by our former controller, Billy Thompson and Suzanne Shank with Chris Weber uh, attached to it is really meant to give access to, to those folks that otherwise really have trouble getting getting any capital. And as you guys know, I can't go to a commercial lender. Right? This is not, it's not legal from a federal standpoint. And so um, this debt vehicle will issue funds at 8% plus prime in terms of, of the interest, so you're looking at a fund where you're looking at 14, 15% interest on the money. Guys, that's better than I can do anywhere else in the private market, right? Like you, you, MSOs aren't getting those rates in some cases, right? <laughs> you know, those are some of the core features. You know, other than that, we have uh, commitments to some real like mentorship training certification programs. We just did a, uh, a mentorship program for cultivation that you're going to see roll out pretty soon, which will fast track those applicants into probably the micro businesses or the or the cultivation side. But, you know, you're going to see more features roll out, right? We have the chief equity officer, Damian Fagan, who has a real commitment to making sure that those communities are um, being prioritized in this process. Look, prior to Prohibition, New York State was one of the largest arrest, cannabis arrest states in the country, right? 1.25 million arrests prior to the end of Prohibition. But with, uh, you know, our goal now is, to get 1.25 million legal sales in the market, right? And when that when that happens, you're going to see a lot of people rejoicing. And so, look, we're off to a good start. But, you know, the difference between conceiving a great idea and executing it can be a huge gap, right? And I think that's where we're in this space right now. And what you also have to appreciate, and you guys understand, is that I've been in rooms with some of these big boys, some of these big cannabis investors, 
who are literally messaging. They're waiting on the sidelines. They want the social equity program to fail. Why? Because they think they can get access to these licenses, right? These distress licenses, as you've seen across the country, where they can buy them for 10 cents on the dollar, right? And so there, there is a, a narrative out there that is very intentional that this program is going to fail. Because if it does, then I can buy these licenses for cheaper. And this whole social equity experiment, we can move on with, right? Like when you talk to big money about social equity, they look at it as a char- as a charitable issue. I don't think they still yet realize the potential value in partnering with legacy and social equity guys, how it actually can strengthen brands, help you penetrate new demographics. I don't think that's yet been realized. And the truth is, look, the capital markets value profit. If we can show that social equity is profitable, everybody's going to be on board. Until then, it's it's a for them it's a charitable thing, and and I think they uh, they come along because we're compelling them to, but it's not by choice. I, I guarantee you that. Well, there's definitely some areas there that specifically I want to push back, but I want to stay with the scoring first because I, I recognize that type of feat, right? Like having only what you say 35 licenses to give out and having to score. All these individuals, it seems very subjective as the scoring process is understanding which variables matter most. Because when you get down to, let's say, the 30 to 40 range, it's nearly impossible to probably distinguish between who deserves one, who not. So why not open up the licenses and let more of a free market opportunity and allow the stronger survive and those who have the chops in order to figure out? I recognize there's capital hurdles as well and extremely competitive. But why not open it up and just let it be more of a free market? This is a really important issue because I think there, there's a school of thought that says a limited license program protects the value of the paper, protects the value of the license. Absence of a limited license program, the value of that license, the value of that paper can't be protected. And in the event that some of these businesses go into default, we can reposition that license and recoup any money that we've invested. There's a thought here that in order to do that, we have to create a limited license program because, quite frankly, we looked at Oregon, we looked at other states that weren't limited, and it's a nightmare over there, right? Like, like you know, I've been to warehouses over there with cannabis. I'm 6'5". I've seen, I've seen mountains of cannabis that dwarf me, right? Because they let everybody grow out there. They didn't, they didn't create, they didn't limit supply at all. And so there has to be some healthy balance in between it, right? Like, I think, to your point... I think there's room, quite frankly, to open it up past 150, especially with now they're saying, you know, the regulations have been have been proposed for the adult use market, say that the, the ROs now, the, the um, MSOs and the, the verticals in the medical market have to wait three years to enter the adult use market. So these guys have some runway, you know, in a state where we have 20 million give or so residents, you know, uh, the idea that we have one store for every 20,000 residents isn't a crazy idea. So you're looking at a thousand potential stores when it's all said and done. Why not issue 250 to start? Quite frankly, there's a lot of product that, that we need to get away, that we need to get off. And we need more we need more shelves to do that. So I'm in a school of thought that um we have the bandwidth and we have the space to issue more licenses. It comes down to real estate and capital, right? And those, and those are the issues right now that I think you know, are holding up. You know, DASNY has been tasked, this, this, that's the dormitory state authority of New York, who's running the, the CARD program right now uh, under Ruben McDaniel, who's one of the, the members of the Cannabis Control Board. You know, they hired CBRE to find uh, retail locations, and, and it wasn't that easy. I think these guys maybe weren't the best suited to do that job and quickly learned, like, this, this is not as easy as they thought it would be. And so, you know, what you've seen now is the state say, hey, if you can find your own space, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of limited license states. I've said this before. I think that I think it creates like a stability within the market, especially early on. 
right? Because if you just make it like a free-for-all, you just create this massive mess and so many operators end up going under and a lot of dirty pool gets played and it just... It really doesn't create uh, a cultural stigma that's beneficial to cannabis as a whole. Because um, I think it ends up supporting the gray market. And so with that being said, was there any motivation to try to limit the licenses as a way to regulate the, the legal market and eliminate the, the black market, if you will? So we call it the we call that the legacy market. Um, the legacy market, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, I remember you know. My, no, you're right. You're the right. First time, <laughs> the first time I had to sell Governor Cuomo, it's not the black market. It's the, the, the legacy. Market. You're the right. Tra- you're traditional right. market is how <laughs> no, we no, no. But but look, I mean, so what what we did, and, and if you look at the rhetoric that we used in the beginning, right? I think all the other states said we need to displace, we need to displace, we need to displace. What we talked about was how do we absorb. How do we absorb, right? Like it's the difference between creating moats around the industry versus on ramps, right? And what and what that meant verbatim for us was like we spent time in the governor's office talking to legacy folks, asking them what do you guys need to see in order to make it enticing for you guys to come out of the shadows into the legal market. And look, you're not going to please them all. There are guys that are just set in their ways. And no matter what you tell them, they're going to say, hey, my margin's 30%. Compliance is going to cost me another 20% on top of that. Why would I walk away making less money? Right? Um, you know, now the obvious answer is there's a ceiling to what you're doing that we're trying, we're trying to break through, right? Like there's, you can never become an international brand as long as you're in that space. There will be a day where, you know, these brands... Look, I think that New York State will launch some of the biggest brands in the world over the next couple of years. Um, and that's, you know, that's because I'm from New York. That's because I think this is the, you know, the epicenter of the world. But you only do that if you're in the legal market. And so, you know, for us, it was, it was really thinking about how do we absorb these guys? How do we bring them in to the market in a way that will enhance the overall experience? You guys know about California. What I mean, I, I conservatively, when I go on the show, I say, hey, you know, California's illicit market is three times bigger than the illegal market. But I've heard guys tell me it's eight to nine times bigger than the legal market, right? And so you can't win that fight, right? And when you look at the at the alcohol industry and that history as well, it took 20 to 30, well, almost 50 years to totally eradicate the, the illegal alcohol industry, right? And so, you know, none of this is going to happen overnight. We know that. But more importantly, from a, from a, a legacy standpoint, from a from a value standpoint, we we really believe unless we find ways to bring those guys into the market, it's not going to succeed because we're going to be competing against guys that have relationships with consumers way longer than we do, know what they like, and have a level of trust. And if you guys have been consuming, you call your dealer because you have that relationship. It's the guy that knows you and knows what you like, and you have that trust. And that's important. That's an important part of this aspect of, the, of this of this market, you know. But but also there is a level of ingenuity. And just an insight that some of these legacy guys have that really adds value to the market. You you talk to MSOs, you know those guys, right? Who are their demographics? Fifty five year old soccer moms, right? Like you look at Cresco, right? What is their Cresco's retail brand is Sunnyside, right? Like their stores are modeled after Sephora stores. It looks like cosmetics, right? Because they're targeting that fifty five year old soccer mom because for them that's the fastest entering demographic into the market. That's what they'll tell you. But what they won't tell you is they can't go after the fifth, you know, the, the high-end connoisseur consumer because those guys, there isn't product that speaks to those guys in an authentic and genuine way. They don't know how to do that. And with the legacy guys and with those, we'll call them great market guys, that's who those guys know how to penetrate. 
Those guys spend money, right? Don't forget, 20% of the population consumes 80% of the product. Who do you think those 20%? <laughs> and so that's that's where, you know, if we can find a way to bring legacy and more traditional uh, guys together, I really think that enhances the whole experience because these legacy guys know how to build brands, know how to build experiences that can penetrate a whole a whole new class of consumers that have not really been in the compliant market up until now. Because the best way that I've seen has not been in the compliance store. Let me just tell you that right now. And legacy operators tend to be like the best do-it-yourself people, right? And so like, if you're starting a company, you want someone who can wear a bunch of hats and legacy operators have been wearing a bunch of hats for a long time. Yeah, and and look, and that's that that's right. But also at the same time, legacy guys do need help from the traditional guys because legacy guys have never done traditional marketing and advertising. You're they right. Complex real estate, two eighty e compliance, right? Like they've never done any of those things, and they're going to need help with that in order to succeed in the legal market. And that's where I think those that's the push and pull there, right? It's like you're yeah. right, extremely resilient, extremely insightful, but they still are going to need help to be successful from a technical and legal component. And that's where they can be, that's where they can really serve each other. That's the exciting part to me that I see is like finding a way to marry those two. When I was in, um, we, when we went to MJ Biz and one of my my clients and friends, Vlad from Happy Monkey, I don't know if you heard of those guys. Yeah, yeah, we, we're a good big fan. <laughs> yeah, then they brought him on stage for a panel that said, Clash of the Titans. Yeah. You know, two, years, <laughs> two or three years ago, right? I remember yeah. that. We were in the audience. <laughs> yeah. And so we pushed back and we said, that's not, that's a wrong way to frame it, guys. It's not about clash. It's about how do we create these real marriages, right? Because look, we get it. We get it. There are the big boys out there, the, the cure leaves of the world who really, really enjoy the lack of federalization on, on cannabis, right? Because it, it's created a moat and it's really protected them uh, from other folks penetrating the industry. Uh, but the time is coming. It's inevitable. And and so, you know, um, let's see. Let's see how things play out. In your opinion, Jesse, what is the most important goal or aspect when opening up an adult use market? Is it the on-ramp for the traditional market into legal or is it uh, something else? Look, the, in New York State, the two driving narratives were, were health and social justice, right? It was repairing the harm that was created by the war on drugs and providing communities access to quality uh, affordable cannabis and medical. You know, I think there are communities and and, and look, I, I, I really believe in the medicine of this plant, right? And I think communities really too far off and overlooked. Everybody knows that everybody has somebody in their neighborhood that's sitting on the couch smoking seven blunts in a day or something. Like we all know that guy. What I tell you is that guy is self-medicating, right? Now he's over-medicating and he's, mis- he's misusing but he's medicating. He's dealing with something. And the closer and the more we realize how to educate our folks and how to properly medicate, the more the better service we're doing to our, for our people because opioids, pills, prescription, all these things that are devastating our communities can be solved with cannabis. And so to me, it's like that, that becomes the focus point here is quality, affordable medicine and making sure that the harm that, that, has, been, that has been done this, we're slowly repairing that harm. And so that that becomes the two focal points. And those are the driving narratives that help that help get us over the finish line. Don't forget, one of the things, one of the big things that was happening was this whole pandemic around the uh, the vape, right? Remember that was happening last year? Both kids were dying on the vape because of this, these additives to the vape. Now that was predominantly tobacco vape products, but we took that and we we ran with it and we said, hey, this is what happens when you don't regulate the market. You allow unregulated product that hasn't been tested to be consumed. And that and that poses a health risk and danger to our folks. And so, again, those two components, the health 
and the social justice were the two major drivers here. But not the, the on-ramp of the, the gray market into the legal market. Not so to try to dampen that. If, if you look, I appreciate you asking that. There's nothing in the MRTA that specifically talks about legacy, right? There's no language that talks about legacy in the MRTA. And I know a lot of the rhetoric, right, address that, right? But what we've done or what they did artfully was take social equity, social economic uh, and ec- equity, and they said, um, you know, a lot of those narratives kind of run, run in line with the legacy narrative, right? And so when I talk to legacy guys, I say, hey, don't focus on the legacy component. Look at the metrics and criteria for social equity and fit that pipeline, fit that narrative. And they, and they coincide pretty well. Even the term legacy black market, I mean, from a government standpoint, you know, you talk to you talk to state reps right now and say, hey, what do you feel about the legacy operators? And they're going to say they're going to look at you like you're speaking Chinese. They don't even know what that means. And so there's massive education from a government bureaucratic standpoint that we still need to um, do. Like there's still a lot of work in that in that in that space. And so personally, was was that important to me? Yes, it was. I don't think it was a compelling reason for for Kathy Hochul or Andrew at that point. Um, I can tell you with confidence it wasn't. But it's become something that now has become more and more prevalent. For different reasons. There are some big personalities in New York, guys like Shice Bubs, Vlad Batista, you know, the Happy Monkey, the Astor Clubs. There are big names in this state and this city uh, that have really dominated the legacy space. And I think there is a desire from the state to find a way to bring those guys in. I think everyone benefits if they do, right? I think as a whole, everyone gets an experience and, and expertise in an area that just might be differently. And one of the, the things that I want to bring up and get your opinion on is this is not an MSO defender, but there is opportunities where they can contribute and make a difference to help others in, in the future, right? For, for one, we're definitely going to be short product. There's no doubt about it. And my concern, not only with the shortage of product, is the integration of both sides. And instead of it being, you know, one versus the other, which is what common rhetoric is, I think it should just be a community aspect where teams can benefit each other and expertise can be learned. Interested to hear your perspective on that. Look, I, one of the things that I that, you know, we were discussing before I left with Axel and something that we might actually see play out is we cannot build this industry without the MSOs. Let's, let's just be straightforward about that. Right. Like we need to use their infrastructure, their expertise, quite frankly, just their market knowledge to get us to a point where we have supply and we have the infrastructure. I think where the push and pull here is on day one, our MSO is going to totally dominate the market, right? And I think what we wanted to make sure was, at least in those first five years, some of the smaller guys had a chance to get in, build up a little bit, and then take their exit, right? Because we know in, in the five to 10 year time frame, there's going to be a massive consolidation of the market, right? That, that's inevitable. The question is, prior to that, how do some of those folks get in, build brands that are worth value that those MSOs will eventually acquire? Look, what we thought was, why not use the MSOs as mentors? Why not use the MSOs as a backbone to even some of the legacy guys or some of the, the smaller operators? You know, the carrot was, hey, we'll let you enter the adult use market. We'll even maybe let you have a vertical in the adult use market. And the stick, the stick was, if you don't do it, we could actually revoke or take back or suspend your license. What we want to see is you mentor 10 to 5 of these smaller guys. If you have a 100,000 square foot canopy, give them 10,000 square feet or give them 5,000 square feet to grow. You know, do do workforce training, help them with compliance. There are low-hanging fruit items. Commit to 40% of your shelf space to smaller cultivators and smaller operators. You know, these are low-hanging fruit issues that we don't even have to compel these guys into doing that, that everybody benefits from. 
I think we're pretty much aligned on this issue. I don't know if you thought I was going to push back, but I, I do think we need MSOs as part of the equation. It really boggles my mind when, when people are like, we got to keep the MSOs out of it and, and put them to the side. It's like, in what other world would you say the guys that are the actual like, like main operators and, like, and market shareholders are, are the ones that shouldn't be at the table? It's like, you wouldn't do that anywhere else. Um, no, and I think, I think a lot of people forget too, right? Like this whole MSO acronym, it stands for a company that has people that can grow wheat, right? And like 10 <laughs> years ago, they, the person growing weed wasn't doing it legally, right? And so MSOs have already adopted people from a legacy industry Absolutely. in order to be successful. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like these guys, most of these guys are former merger and acquisition guys. Wall Street guys, real estate guys, right? Like, and they decided to go on a two year, like, research and development exp- exploration, talk to some people, and all of a sudden became the, like, the, the, the Svengali's of cannabis, right? But, like, they don't have more experience than Vlad from Happy Monkey. He's been doing this for 20 years. He spent the last five years touring around the country, talking to every legal and illegal operator out there, and has real data and real, real experience and anecdotals. Right. And so it, it becomes this this very interesting dynamic where, you know, what I've seen is those that have the resources and capital lack the market expertise and knowledge. And those that have the market expertise and knowledge lack the capital and resources. And so it's like, how do we fuse those and make that marriage, right? And facilitate that 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 bond. And that's that's the exciting work. That's the work that gets really exciting because when you see that work and that click, I mean it's not cookies. I don't think cookies is the model. Although cookies becomes the closest thing to the fusion of culture with corporate, right? Um, and we're seeing how that plays out, right? Like cookies has a store on 34th Street that's just selling clothing. I'm hearing they're going to shut down in the next couple of weeks because they're not doing well. And I hear they have a whole new brand for New York because, as you saw, the regulations are not going to allow cookies to brand themselves as cookies in New York. I mean, also, <laughs> that, that real estate they have is really primo spot, right? And I can't imagine that that is cheap. It has to be incredibly expensive. And I'm assuming that if you're only selling clothing and you're not selling enough clothing, it's very hard to operate. But on the front, it is really good marketing, right? Like the position oh, yeah. is beautiful. <laughs> but that's expensive, expensive marketing. And there might be more creative ways for Burner to do. So I, I go back to like, I go back to California because I think there's just there's so much data that we can look at. I think there's this back and forth about real estate. Do I need to have the Times Square location to do $60 million a year? And I think juxtaposing the MedMen store in Venice to the Stizzy store in LA, right? The Stizzy store is doing $60 million a year. That store is in Bumble. Like, like it's not, it's in like the most random spot. You have to drive to get there. It's not a great location, but they're doing $60 million a year. And they're way more profitable than MedMen because their overhead isn't insane, right? And and they have they have a brand that people are seeking out, right? And so you know, look, when the hype dies down, right? Like after this first two years and the hype dies down, you know, location is potentially important. But if the overhead is too high where you can't make any money, what's the point? And this is cannabis, right? So when I, when I say that, like, it's not like it's Louis Vuitton where I can mark up my products 22,000%. There's only so much I can mark up cannabis for, right? Like I was talking to my boy the other day, a bottle of water on Park Avenue costs $3. A bottle of water in Harlem costs $1. It's the same damn bottle of water. Right, but location changes the value of that. But you can't. You, there's only so much you can do with an eighth of weed, right? I can only charge it so much, and that's yeah. still not enough to eat into the margin or the overhead 
that I'm paying for those prime, those primo locations. And so I think there is this like hyper focus on like, I need the best physical location. I need to be in Times Square. I need to be in Union Square. I need to be here. I think that's going to, I think folks are going to realize what they need is a good brand and, and operating, trying to keep operating costs as low as possible, trying to keep overhead as low as possible. And if they can withstand that storm over this next year, because, you know, hey, what do they say? Uh, win- winter is coming. It's a, it's a yeah. reference, right? Like, then, then they can they can survive, but but that's going to be the challenge for a lot of these guys. I I don't think people realize how how hard that actually is, right? And given today's framework of let's say we've got one store, and hopefully by six months from now we've got twenty, just hopefully guessing. The expectation is that as more stores come online, the traffic foot area is going to change, which is going to adjust their numbers, which I think makes it even harder for current operators to make financial decisions. Right? Capital is hard to come by. Decisions are hard to do. Your partners are limited. And now given the framework of how things are, it's really impossible, nearly impossible, to make accurate financial future decisions. I've worked on pro formas for this stuff. I mean, you got to see the differences on this. It's insane. It's insane, right? Like I've seen pro formas that say this is a $17 million a year business. Others say it's a $60 million a year business. I can drive a jumbo tractor trailer through that, 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 that difference right there, right? Like and and so look, a lot of this is is uh, what we say the best you know hy- hypothetical guessing as possible based on the data that we have available to us. A lot of that is going to be put into practice in this next year or so. We're going to see how these things really play out. And look, and I think you know I've, I've done a lot of traveling around the state to the farmers to see what's out there. Ninety percent of the stuff being grown, I would not touch with a ten foot pole, right? Like I'd say ten percent of the product out there is quality, but it's going to take a couple of years for those guys to dial in. Like even if you took a, a very experienced cultivator from another state and put them in New York, it's going to take him, you know, a couple of runs to really figure it out because it's a different environment, different uh, resources, got to figure out the pH levels in the water, all these other elements, right? And so I think it's going to take some time for some of these things to figure themselves out. And and I think to your point, that's going to make the difference with the guy that's 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 here in three years to the guy that had a, you know, it was a good run for a year and a half and they're gone. But uh, isn't isn't that why consumers, New York consumers are ultimately going to be the ones suffering from the market dynamics and wouldn't that be an extra reason why it would be helpful to have ROs, let's say segment a certain portion of their cultivation for the adult use market just so that the consumers could get some additional benefits and, and just to kind of add on to your point. Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, it, it's it's very interesting, you know, who gets access to what and how, right? And I think that becomes especially in a place like New York, you know, everybody wants to have the fire. Everybody wants to have the A1. Everybody wants to have the best of the best, right? And and the ROs and the the verticals are going to play a significant role in that. But I think what what needs to, you can't forget, and what we've seen in other states is what, what ends up really happening is the ROs, I like to say today's fish versus yesterday's fish, right? And the fish meaning the product, right? Like, how do we make sure that the diversity of product is equally being spread out amongst the market versus the RO saying, I'm going to pick you, you, and you. You guys are the winners and everybody else is left out in the cold, right? So now these are the three retailers that have that have the best product and everybody else is left behind. I think that's where the state starts to get a little nervous, right? That's where they say, hey, we don't want to create this unfair dynamic and this unfair competition where now these three guys are the, are the coveted stores and everybody else is being boxed out. That's where brand, brands win, right? Like like we talk about, like that's where the investment into the brands is really going to be the USP of these different companies. Because 
What I think is being understood or expected is that people are going to get participation trophies, and that's not what's happening. What they're getting is (laughs) they're they're getting a chance to operate first in an extremely challenging competitive market with a tiny bit of head start, no doubt about that. But ultimately, as things progress, they're going to have to navigate all these landmines first, and brands are going to win out. And eventually, it's going to be way harder than it is right now. I agree with you on the brand's part. Look, I, I, I've been saying this over and over. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but but the first mouse is going to get the trap. The right. second mouse is going to get the cheese. Right? And I don't I don't think being first is the best here in this case. Right? I think there's still a lot that needs to, to be like un, like untangled and a lot needs to reveal itself. And so, you know, I know there's been this mad dash. I want to be the first one. I want to open up first. <laughs> but the guys that I'm working with, I'm like, this is... Let's wait. Let's see how this thing plays out. There's no rush here to be the first. There's still a lot of stuff that needs to get to get on to get figured out here. And so, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think there's, you know, there's still time. And folks that I think are savvy about this stuff are kind of seeing how things unravel, how they develop um, before they jump in head first. Because the other part that you kind of touched on is this. Well, we've created this two tier system with this true party of interest in this undue influence issue where we, in some ways we've really limited access to capital and to expertise. And I think that, that was unfortunate. I think that was a, I think in the method of trying to protect some of the smaller guys, I think we might've inadvertently harmed them in the process. And I'm really eager to see how that plays out. You know, I'm working with a nonprofit called Life Camp. They were one of the first 36 to win a license. They don't have access to the debt fund and now they need to raise money. One of the other ones, um, the Dole Fund, had to sell 49% of their license just to get out, just to be operational, right? They sold it to Harbor. And so it's already on day one, you know, they've just lost, you know, they've lost a huge portion of their their operation and the revenue that they're supposed to generate to enhance and further their mission. And so I'd like to- get a chance to, right? Yeah, they get a chance. It's tough, right? That's the decisions they got to make. Those are the tough choices they're being compelled to make, right? Those are the really tough choices they have to make. And it's just the reality, Right, it's just the reality. But if the state's idea was we want to give these nonprofits a social enterprise to help them further their mission, then the idea that they have to sell almost half of it to accomplish that, it almost feels counterintuitive. It really does. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Like that's the, the hardest challenge is that you've got a bunch of uh, variables trying to make a decision that collectively people think is best. But as everyone usually does, people operate in their own self-interest and the person making a decision also has their own personal biases, right? Is probably not intentionally making selective decisions, but ultimately, like you said before, Jesse, have to go left or right, but has to make a decision. Either way, people are going to be mad because at the end of the day, what you think is fair and what I think is fair is not necessarily fair. That's right. That's right. By the way, fair has nothing to do with this thing, guys. <laughs> just, just, using, just using that like it's an example of like what what we would decide ultimately. Uh, nothing to do with cannabis. I, I, by the way, I thought it did. I, I learned I learned the hard way. It has nothing Oops. to do with cannabis. Turns out cannabis is uh, just as hard to operate as it is to uh, write the rules for. <laughs> I'm, and I'm learning. I'm learning. You know, I'm learning the hard way, right? I mean, I, I you know, my relationship with cannabis starts back in like in child, like growing up in New York City and just like being exposed to it from as a child, like as a, as an adolescent, as a high schooler. But we're in a different world now. I mean, what got me involved in cannabis first was I was I was riding around with these kids from Canada who were like some of the MedMen guys. We were in a limo as of when I was a consultant, and they're telling me we run the cannabis scene in New York. We run it in New York. These these white boys from Canada, and that just didn't sit well with me. I was like, this is fucking. There's something wrong with this. <laughs> this is not the. This is not right. Uh, and it wasn't even like it's like you guys are Canadian. Like, come on, this is New York City. 
Like, don't tell me you guys are running cannabis in New York. And that's when I got involved. I was like, we need to find uh, real talented New York folks that need to be at the forefront of this thing. Um, and they're out there. They're out there, guys. I, 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 there are so, I mean, New York is full of creative, brilliant minds when it comes to this market. And I'm really excited for the rest of the world to see that. Yeah, me as well. So what is happening today at City Council? that is probably very important um, for the future of the cannabis market. Yeah, so the city council is holding a hearing as we speak about the proliferation of these illegal stores. If you go down New York, I, I say it all the time, I can get a dab at my bodega right now, right? Like there are stores and it's it's ostentatious, guys. The signs read Zaza or Pip, right? It's like, it, it, is, it is blatant. I can't walk two city blocks in Manhattan without passing a store. And I think a lot of New Yorkers really have no idea what is compliant and what isn't compliant. And I think the state is starting to embark on an education campaign of buy legal New York weed. Um, they're putting medallions in the front of the, on the front of the stores, a QR code that you can scan. But look, this is really going to come down to consumers making educated decisions, right? There was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago from um, the, the Medical Cannabis Industry Association, which is really this all the MSOs, all the ROs, they bought a bunch of product from the illegal stores and tested it. Pesticides, E. coli, heavy metals, just things that you probably wouldn't want to consume or put in your body, they found. And so consumers are going to have to make a decision, right? Do they want to run the risk and run the gamble of using product that has not been tested? Uh, or do they want to jump in and, and, like, and like support guys playing by the rules. Look, the other thing is, and let's be honest, like a lot of New Yorkers that have consumed have been smoking weed with pesticides and heavy metals for the last 20 years. So you tell them that and they're like, but I, that's what I, I've been smoking. So what's the problem? What's the difference? But I think as, you know, we, you know, we're moving into this very health conscious world where people want the antioxidants and the Zambucas and all that other stuff, that's going to be part of the issue. That's going to be part of the issue. So I think one of the biggest concerns with that is not only the availability of it because all the different stores that are around, but is the trust aspect that you said is that if people don't know the difference and don't really look into the difference, it's nearly impossible for them to, to identify the, the tiny symbol in the window and say, okay, this is unlicensed because I've got friends who text me every single day saying, hey, you told me New York is not open. There's only one or two stores, but I just went to a store down the street that all my favorite California products, I got to buy everything with a credit card. Like, why did you tell me it's not? It is. And it's like, well... Yeah. By the way, all those products are fugazi, right? Like, like I can I can go to Alibaba right now and get a kingpin like bag and a and a Sherbinsky and all that and put anything I want into it, right? Like, don't guys, don't don't be fooled. It's all fugazi. But, but price matters, right? And that's really my biggest concern is that if people are paying, let's say, eighty dollars for an eighth at a legal store and forty dollars for a product they think is is fire at an unlicensed store, it's really hard for me to believe that people are going to travel farther to pay more. And wait online. Look, I, 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 this, this is going, this, this right there is going to be something that that we will see play out in the next couple of years, right? Like, do I want to take the risk and and buy, you know, uh, Uncle Jimmy's whiskey from that he made in his basement, right? Or do I want to go get the the stuff out of the store that I know is quality and I know is not going to make me sick the next day, right? I think that's that's kind of what's at, at play here. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I agree with you. I think value is important. I think quality and value are important for consumers. And then who's behind the brand is, is like the last thing. But like, I do think you're right about that. I think that's going to be a major function of, of uh, who wins and who loses in this market. 
what is ultimately the legal market wins, right? I mean, you look at mature states. California is probably the exception, but I think once the rest of the country kind of adopts their own legal rules and develops their own supply chains, California's uh, legacy market will be in a uh, much worse off position, right? I think just people like it. It's a lot easier to go to a store that you know is going to be open at a set amount of time. Right? And I understand that these bodegas and everything, but they'll shut them down. And like after three years, like it's just like time, right? Like time is on the regulatory side and it's yeah, not look, on the traditional side. That's not right. And look, there, there is legislation that, that the state is, is holding up right now. I'm not sure why, but there's legislation ready to go to, to enhance inf- enforcement. Um, we can go after yeah. the landlords, right? I tell people this story all the time. There was a time where you go down to Canal Street and buy a knockoff Gucci bag, right? In a brick and mortar retail store. Now I can still do that, but now I got to walk down an alleyway. Somebody opens up a catalog, they open up a trunk and I take the bag out of the trunk. No more brick and mortar retail. Why? In the early 2000s, Bloomberg with the with the designers um, companies found a public ordinance law in New York City that said that the landlords were responsible to know whether or not their commercial tenants were engaged in the sale of illicit goods. And if and whether they were aware or not, once it was discovered, they could be fined a hundred thousand dollars a day. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's now the kind of thing that the regulatory is gonna do. How quick they <laughs> shut that down, you know, you can't that's it, it's done. <laughs> totally. for the landlords, because the political uh, guys, nobody wants to line up black and brown folks and put them in handcuffs for cannabis anymore, right? Like that is politically unattainable. We can't do that anymore. Yeah. That's but kind of like the, the biggest landlords. that's the kind of crutch dilemma of like trying to tamper down, but also exactly like you said, trying not to to Done that. Go after the landlords. Find them. I guarantee you. Start finding them one hundred thousand dollars a day. This shit will be overnight. It will be done. To your point, (laughs) it's not wrong. I've started seizing products, and the next day these guys are open. Right, I I see it in my neighborhood. It happened. They seize the product. Literally the next day, the shelves are restocked. They're they're operational. So that's not going to get it done. No, No. the stores are nice too. They. <laughs> they're nice. Like, let's just call it what it is. Like, they're, they're nice stories. Like, they, so whoever built out those stores spent serious. Dude, what are you gonna do? You live in Long Island. Like, you guys opted out. There's no retail in you. I'm a, I'm a medical patient. Thank God, I pay <laughs> over an arm and a foot for um, for some product. Look, look, the other thing I'll say is we think 40 percent of the market's going to be delivery, right? Like, there's going to be a world where like I can open up my phone, boop 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 boop, just like seamless, and somebody's at my door in 30 minutes with, with my medicine. I wish that was today, Jesse. I wish that was today. <laughs> it's around the corner, right? And I think, quite frankly, I think our generation is not going to want to go into a store no. often, right? Like once you know what you like, you know where it is, it's at a good price point. You're just going to want, you're just going to want the convenience of it coming to you and the personalization of, the, of them knowing what you like. And so, you know, look, all these advancements, I think New York State with its academic institutions like Columbia and some and some of these fine academic institutions. With some of the culture that we have, uh, you know, fusing all those things together from an R and D, from a creative standpoint, I mean, what's better? What can be better? And such a big consumer base. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, I'm really excited. If you can't tell, um, but there's going to be some kinks that we have to, to 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 hammer out, and I think that's what these next years are going to going to unfold for us. When you got started in your cannabis journey, what did you get right, and most importantly, what did you get wrong? Well, what we got wrong was. Um, trying to, trying to look, I think sometimes in government, you try to pick winners and losers before, before the game's even begun. Right. And I think the problem with that from a bureaucratic standpoint is we don't have a crystal ball. 
And so you really don't know how things are going to unfold. And so for, for an example, one of the things that we were going back and forth on delivery on was whether we should create zones and limit uh, each license to zip codes or to geographic areas. And I think what we realize is, is that we are sometimes you have to let the market kind of figure these things out. Let the market determine who is going to be the best operator on delivery, right? Who can, and that's really figuring out by who has the best product, the most affordable product, and can be consistent on, on delivery of time as quick as possible, right? Those are the guys that people are going to use and will rise to the top. And so for us, it was how do we protect the small guy from being able to do that before they before the weed maps and the 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 Uber Eats, the Uber Weeds of the world come in and dominate, right? And so what we did is we said, let's cap at 25 FTE, full-time equivalent, right? And by the way, Weed Maps, the big guys gave us that recommendation. They said, why don't you cap the employees? That way you give these guys a running start. And I think what, what, what we understood, and this is the part I think we did well, was understanding that the market on day one is going to look very different than the market in year five and not having the expectations of, Oh, everything has to be figured out on day one. Things are going to have to play themselves out. Competition is good. Competition forces creativity. This is, this is a market that rewards creativity. It rewards people that think on their feet and, are, and know how to work around different problems. And so we just have to have, let that happen. We have to, you know, almost a survival of the fittest. I think what the, the burden on the state, on the regulators, is to try to create a, a level of enough playing ground, an even, an even level of enough playing ground where the smaller guys have a fighting chance. And I think that's what the focus you're seeing from the state is like, let's give these guys a running start so that maybe they have a chance to build something of value. So let's see how that plays out. I, I, think, I think that's a good example of the question you're asking. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? If you don't share it, you can't keep it. I think too often people are gatekeepers or they want to hold on for desperate because it's their thing and they care about it. But the reality is, unless you share it, unless you educate others, unless you bring other people on board, you're not going to protect it or preserve it. It will die with you. It will go on with you if you don't share it. And so if you really want to keep it, you have to share it. And I think that's a good piece of advice for folks. Really well said. All right, prediction time. Jesse, it's 2028. What does the New York adult use cannabis market look like? In 2028, groups like Happy Monkey have 20 stores in Manhattan, another 20 in the Bronx, and where else, wherever else they want to have it. Long and Island. Social consumption is, you know, social consumption sites are places of creativity. And we have over 5 million uh, sales of quality product in the streets. You know, this becomes the epicenter of, of cannabis. We're no longer cultivating in New York. I think cultivation, we shouldn't be cultivating in 52 states, right? Like we don't make bourbon in 50 states in America, right? There's no reason why we should be making cannabis in every state. And so I think, you know, New York becomes the, the top market, the number one market in the world, passing, passing California and everywhere else. That's what I, that's what I predict. Kellen. I think in five years, you see the first global cannabis brand out of New York. Whether that's Hockey Monkey or another player that's currently involved in the industry right now. But I do think, as much as a Colorado boy I am, I do think that New York is the financial and cultural epicenter of the world. And I think having cannabis legal there is going to do... It's going to change the cultural stigmas surrounding cannabis globally just it by miles, right? And I think that that provides the opportunity for... Uh, 
a New Yorker to create the first global cannabis brand. So I think the first global cannabis brand has come out in New York and it's being sold across the world. What do you think, Brian? I think 2028, we've got one, we've got one big issue that's going to come up first. I think we're going to have a, a major lawsuit that comes down. And I think that lawsuit allows for way more people to come into the space, which increases the dispensaries and the opportunities and the supply and demand across the, the industry. But I think that's beneficial because I think that really hurts the traditional market and puts those stores out of business. And I think then the consumer wins, they get more access to products, specifically the medicine we talked about, and it gives them more of a chance for the competition, like you said, Jesse, for the strong to survive. And for that, I think we need to have more stores, more availability and more access points so that the consumer can be more educated. And unfortunately, I believe that we'll have to have a lawsuit first because this is New York and Problems and money. Those guys, those are some great predictions, man. Cool. So, so Jesse, the ball over there. What's, what's going on? Just <laughs> 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 glad you didn't take ours. That would have been tough. Uh, so, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more. Where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jesse Jesse Campo Moore J E S S E Campo Moore. Uh, or, or look at my website CampoAmoreAndSons.com. CampoAmoreAndSons.com. Any way to reach me there? I'm on Instagram by my name, and they want to follow up with you. I mean, you can find a way to plug us in. But I'm happy to happy to talk to anybody. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine. I love what you guys are doing. I think you guys are having the, the right conversations, the real conversations. Really appreciate you know guys giving me the time to talk to you guys on, and um I'm here anytime. I appreciate that. We'll link it up in the show notes. This was fun. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, appreciate your time. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, brother. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.